This is a recording from a sermon from Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit lightsandiego.com. We're going to be hanging out in Luke chapter 15 today. And uh, man, I'm really pumped for, for tonight's message. Uh, we are still in the beginning phases of a conversation called heart renovation around this idea of that Jesus doesn't only give us a new heart, but wants to form that new heart into his image. And that takes time, a lifetime of letting him come and do what he does best and renovate our heart. And we just, we're kind of shining light in that process. And like any renovation, there is a sequence in which that happens. We talked for the first month about this idea of design. What is God? What's the end goal? Ultimately, is Jesus. It's our identity as the beloved. It's the resurrected life he promises us. And then this month, we're really focusing on really kind of that second stage in, in any renovation, and that's demo. The things that need to be taken out, the walls that need to be moved, and just coming to a place of saying, okay, God, nothing's off limits. Go ahead and let's just start. Let's, if there's something that needs to leave, you can make that leave. And we've been, we've been kind of working around this idea of repentance. And repentance in Greek means to turn. In Hebrew, which I love and we're talking about tonight, means to turn back to. If you almost have the idea of coming back home. And so this is what we're going to be really focusing on tonight, and I'm pumped because we're going to be talking about a familiar story, but I have to warn you, because familiar stories oftentimes can do something in us where we're going to be like, oh, I've heard that one before. Got it. I'm going to just go and doodle or check Instagram or something. I've got this one down. Um, and I just want to let you know, as someone who's preached this passage, who's studied this passage, I learned more this week than I ever have before, and I hope you would too. And so what we need to do as a church collectively is to take everything we know, all of our presuppositions, and just put them aside for tonight. And let's approach this text with brand new eyes, brand new hearts, and let's let God do something new in us as a result of that. And one of the ways that we can do that is understanding not just how you hear it, but how would have they heard it? How would they, they heard this message 2,000 years ago as a Palestinian Jewish person listening to this rabbi from Nazareth named Jesus? What would they have received? What would have triggered them? What kind of emotions would have arise as they would have heard this? And, and I guarantee that this will have challenged us. And, and so there's, and there's some amazing work on this. And I'll just say, um, Tim Keller's got an amazing book called Prodigal God. Um, there's some other amazing resources out there, and, and some of which content I'll be sharing tonight. Please go and, and continue to study and look at this, because this is such a beautiful picture of the gospel. And so before we read Luke 15, uh, let's just go ahead and pray, ask God to open up our hearts. And you might be like, man, we pray a lot. It's true. I need all the help I can get. So let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, we thank you for tonight. Holy Spirit, we stop and we welcome you. You would illuminate the scriptures. You would guide us and pastor us tonight. Lord, we just confess to you we have calloused hearts. God, that we turn all the time away from the, the life that you've promised us. And tonight I pray you'd welcome us home. And Lord, that you just give us new insight, which would um, ultimately turn into transformation as we see you more clearly, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, here we go, Luke 15, starting in verse 11. <clears throat> Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. 
The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything there, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come home, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Um, man, what a beautiful story. I mean, we can just go home right now. And, we, uh, and the, the story opens, and something is very clear that we need to understand from a literary sense. The main character of the story is not the prodigal son. It's the father. The father is the main character of the story. He's the one who's woven throughout both scenes. Uh, because he's introduced first and because simply because of the patriarchal culture that this comes from, he's, the about, he's what the story is about. So we're going to watch his responses. And this, is, this comes at the heels of two other stories. And so the original audience, and this is really important for us to know, is tax collectors and Pharisees. There could not be two more opposing people. We have the Pharisees who were the religious elite of the day. They were almost the spiritual police. They believed that the reason they were underneath Roman rule is because the, the Jewish people were not following the commandments. So they inserted themselves into the community to make sure that all the misfits and riffraff would get their act together and follow Torah and, uh, and, and were kind of in, with a heavy hand making people be guilted it back into alignment with the, with the Torah. And on the other end were the tax collectors who simply said, screw you, I'm going to do what I want to do, and I'm going to actually exploit you and my Jewish family to make sure I get mine. 
And in the Jewish mind, there could not be a lower sector of humanity than the tax collectors. And Luke points out, this is the audience. The tax collector, the Pharisee. And Jesus begins to start telling two different stories. He tells them a story about a shepherd who loses a sheep, right? Leaves the 99 and goes after the one and, and brings them back. There's a woman who loses a coin, searches every, you know, just tears apart her house and, and finds her coin. Both of these throw a party to celebrate they found. And, and the whole time, the Pharisees and the tax collectors are like, okay, cool, like I get it, you know, like things that are lost or found, it's nice. And then it's almost like all of those were set up for this third story. And he draws her attention and he's like, let me tell you one more story. And he begins to start sharing the story that, that would have been anything but predictable or safe or nostalgic. It would have been provocative and shocking and unthinkable. And the story opens with this father being met with his young son who comes up to him and he says, Father, I would like a third of my estate. And the reason why this is a shocking thing largely has to do with this worldview system, and we're going to just do a, a little bit of sociology here for a second, if you can stick with me, called honor and shame. Now, in, in America, we live in a culture driven by guilt. And so we, we constantly think about, it's not just what we do, it's motivation, right? We have this whole thing, it's about the why. In, the, in honor and shame culture, it's about the what. What did you do? And so I'm going to just give you five uh, kind of unwritten laws in an honor and shame culture that do, this isn't just biblical, but still today in any Eastern culture, whether that's in, in Asia, the Middle East, uh, parts of Africa, they still live within this honor and shame paradigm. And we think of ourselves as progressive and we've evolved and this other thing. But what's interesting is because of social media, we are quickly becoming once again an honor and shame culture. And, but we just have to, we really don't understand what this means and why this would have been such a big deal. So let me just give us a little sociology lesson real quick. So 500 rules of honor and shame culture. Number one, family defines everything. There are no individuals in honor and shame cultures. There are families, there are villages, there is the community. We have some friends of ours, Matt and Kayla, who are with us uh, at dinner a couple nights ago, and they just got back from Iraq. They lived there for eight years with their, their, their small children. And they're telling us a story that uh, she went to the supermarket and they had Kerrygold butter. Anyone? You know what I'm talking about? If you don't know, go to the store and get Irish butter. The Kerrygold stuff is super expensive, so worth it. So she shows up to the Iraqi market and they have Kerrygold butter. And she buys all of it. Because she's like, oh, this is really good butter. And as she's le leaving, she's literally shamed and shunned because you're not allowed to buy out a product from a store because you're not thinking about the community. And so, and we would never get that, right? We're like, oh, my favorite drink, I'm going to buy them all. Or, oh, my favorite this. And I, I'm like, ah, oh, lucky me, it's my, it's my day. It never happened in honor and shame culture. There is no individual. Family defines everything. And so if you dishonor your family name, you run the risk of being cut off. This is why people who convert to Christianity in an Eastern honor and shame culture, uh, the amount of shame that brings on their families, this isn't an individual decision. This affects the whole. So number two, 
Uh, social capital fixes anything. By social capital, I mean your reputation. How people see you matters way more than what you do. Who you are, the reputation that precedes you, essentially allows the life that you live. So another example of this is uh, friends of ours who are in Thailand, uh, driving, gets pulled over to get a ticket, and immediately he does the American thing, and he starts to explain himself. Oh, I couldn't read the sign, and da-da-da, my heart was in a good place, you know? And the police officer's like, here, doesn't, no, doesn't matter to me. The next week, he sees someone getting pulled over, and he's like, oh, yeah, this guy's about to get his. And the person literally leans out the window and just yells his family name, and the officer waves him on. Because it's not about why you got the ticket or not, it's who are you? So your social capital fixes anything. Number three, aggression restores honor. So when honor is broken, when the family's been dishonored, the village has been dishonored, aggression is the way you restore honor back to the family or back to the thing. This is why um, oftentimes uh, we, when we hear about maybe Islamic extremists on the news and things like that, they believe they're restoring honor back to Allah. Um, and so, and this is why... Um, and again, as Americans, I mean, we're like, we're quickly moving away from even a culture who spanks, right? I remember getting some good spankings when I was a kid. It was good for me, right? And I'm just realizing, like, man, there's going to come a day where, like, I'm going to get put in jail if I think about spanking my kids. But in, in the honor and shame culture, honor is restored through, through aggression. And we're going to see the, how, why this makes a story, shines light on this. Number four, Words define status. So how you talk, the questions you ask, tells everyone the kind of status that you have. This is why Jesus was a master of asking questions. It's a way to actually show your status. And so the words that you use were massive in developing what kind of honor or shame you'd be brought upon you and your family. And then the fifth thing is this. Food conveys honor. This is why it was such a big deal when Jesus would eat with sinners because simply by eating with sinners, you are giving honor back to that individual or to that family name. Because I'm like, who, who cares? He's just having dinner with the tax collector. But in that culture, he is messing with their honor and shame worldview. So again, well, we're going to kind of go back to the story now, but that's this is a little bit of a primer. And again, there's so much more you can look at it. But this is why this story would have been baffling to his original audience. So here comes the younger son. And he comes to his father and he says, I would like a third of my, or I would like my inheritance. His inheritance would have been a third of the estate. The reason for that is the oldest son always gets a double portion. And because there's only two sons, he would have gotten one third. He got two thirds. And when he says the father divided his property, the word property in, in the Greek is the word bios, which means life. And so the father is not just simply writing him a check. He literally has to go and sell his livelihood his estate, his farmland. He has to go maybe weeks or months of transactions to get one-third of his property together and to give it to his son. And by doing this, this is not a private family matter. This is a public process. So he is bringing shame on his family as his father is selling his land. He's literally diminishing his status. Remember, his reputation is shrinking in the community. Maybe he was a prominent member of the community, but probably not anymore because he has a son who's shameful and he doesn't have as much property as he used to. And so as the original audience would have heard this, they immediately would have been like, oh man, this kid's about to get jacked. 
Are you kidding? As a matter of fact, there are no laws in, in, in Greek literature, in Hebrew literature, that even deal with someone asking for their inheritance early because it was unthinkable. The only law that would exist is if a father became ill, you could have access to your inheritance early, but you were not allowed to sell it. But for someone to actually want all of it before they were dead would have been proclaiming to their father, I wish you were dead. The youngest son was literally looking at him saying, I want your property, not your presence. I want what you can give me. I want the goods. I don't actually care about you. I mean, the, sh- the shame and the, the horror that would have just, the audience would have just been like, what is happening? This father needs to beat his son, cast him out of the village, shun him. This isn't, this isn't even his son. And then the next part of the story is he just gives it to him. Everyone at this point, tax collector, Pharisee, would have just been shocked. What is going on? What's happening? So the son takes one-third of his inheritance, goes off to a faraway land, most likely it would have been kind of a Gentile context, a non-Jewish context, and just squanders it, right? Just spends all of it in lavish living, doing whatever he wants, according to his older brothers, just spending on prostitutes. And then all of a sudden a famine hits and he's got nothing. So he goes and he says hi, he goes and attaches himself to a to someone to work his land. And the Greek word that's happening right here is that he's literally, um, he, he wasn't hired. He starts working for someone in such a way that the person is kind of now stuck with him. So have you ever been to like a stoplight or a gas station where someone comes and starts cleaning your window without you asking them? And what they're doing is they're trying, they're trying to shame you into paying them. They just gave you a service. If you don't pay them back, then that's shame on you. Well, this is what the youngest son is doing. He shows up. It's a famine. He's, the, the landowner probably doesn't have that much um, goods to give, but he just starts working his land, and because of honor and shame, the landowner has to pay this man because he doesn't want shame to come on his family. And as he's doing this, and in that culture, you can't just fire someone because, again, that brings shame on you. So you'd give the individual a job that they would refuse to do. So he says, ah, oh, you're Jewish. Go feed the pigs. And so he gives him this job that he would have just quit, except for he doesn't. And at this point, the Pharisees are just like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. That's what you get. You go and you take your father's right, you take Yahweh's goods, whoever they're interpreting the story, and you go and squander it on yourself. You're going to be hanging out with pig slop. I love this story, Jesus. You finally got one right. And the Pharisees and the tax collectors are probably feeling pretty uncomfortable, like, oh my gosh, that's us. And so the youngest brother just begins to start thinking, man, my father's hired hands, remember, he's a hired hand. This isn't even a servant or a slave who would have lived in the house. This is someone who lives in the city who comes and works the land. He says, my father's hired hands have food to spare. I will come back, and, and he prepares this, this long speech, right? I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. By the way, the intro to his speech is the same speech that Pharaoh gave, which would, to the original audience, would have immediately questioned the sincerity of his repentance. Would have been like, is he even really sorry, or is he just hungry? And we really don't know, but there is this allusion to the fact that, man, this, this kid's just kind of scummy. He's kind of, he's kind of punk. And he, and he starts to make his way back to, the father's, to his father's house. And, and here, here's his mindset. 
I am going to earn my way back because in that culture, you can't just go apologize, and this is big, you have to go make restitution. By hiring him or asking to be hired on with one of his hired hands, he would have been entering into a process of paying back one-third of his process, and then he might be allowed into the house. He would have to pay that back. Would he have ever paid that back as an apprentice of a hired hand? Probably not. But it's better than the life he's living. So he comes back, and here is his plan. I am going to try and earn my way back into my father's house. And this is, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty funny. My, my daughter, um, Vienna, who's five years old, we're driving yesterday. And, um, and, I, and I asked all the kids, I'm like, hey, anyone want to go with me to Home Depot? And normally that's a quick no, um, especially with this guy. And, and so, but Vienna's like, I'll go with you, Dad. I'm like, awesome, get in the car, Vienna. And we get in the car, and immediately we shut the door, and she's like, can I get candy? And I was like, what are you talking about? And she's like, we're on a date. Let's get candy. And I was like, and I'm like, oh, well, I'm like, you kind of already had some candy today. It's, you know, it's kind of a rule. Like, you kind of, and I'm just talking to her. And then she looks at me, and she starts making restitution. She's like, Dad, I will never eat candy ever again. If you give me candy today, I won't watch TV the rest of my life if you give me this. And I'm listening to her speech, and I'm just like, I'm actually like kind of like sad for her. I'm like, that's a really sad trade-off. Like, you got to work on your bargaining skills. Like, you could, I'm like, you could have just said, like, I want to have candy tomorrow, and I would have said yes. But like, you're committing your whole life to this thing. She's, she's trying to make restitution to her dad. She's like, I'll do this. I'll make it right. Just give me, you know, like a Snickers or something. And, and I'm talking her down. I'm like, oh, no, no, you shouldn't work a better deal with me right now. But this son kind of has a mentality like, dad, if you let me back in. I'll make it right. I'll pay you back what I can never pay back. And this is where the story begins to start getting really interesting. So he comes towards the town. He says the father sees him from far away, far away. And it says the father starts running towards him. There's a couple things happening here. One is, is he looks down the road, and I've, I always imagine this being the road to his property, like some Italian vineyard or something, like, oh, here he comes over yonder. Um, there's one road, and it's probably the road that travels through the village. He's not just looking at his property, he's probably looking down through the town, and he sees his son coming. Now, what every one of the audience is expecting to happen right now is that his father, along with the village, would meet him at the entrance of the town, would have met him and done an actual shunning ceremony where the entire village turns their back on him and makes him leave. This is what everyone's expecting, by the way, in the story. This is what the Pharisees are like, here he comes, he's going to get what's coming to him. And the father runs. Scholars are convinced that the father's running towards him was not simply because he missed him or the passion that he felt, but it was because he wanted to beat the village. 
I have to get to my son before the village does. I have to get to him before everyone else does. Because if everyone else does, he'll be shunned and he won't be welcomed back in. I have to make sure that anyone who sees my son knows that he's mine again. So he lifts up his robe and begins to run. By the way, you do not run in a patriarchal Middle Eastern society. To this day, our friends Matt and Kayla, he told me, I was telling him about this message, and he said, in eight years of living in Iraq, I didn't see one single Iraqi man run. Not one. He says, children would run, women would run, men do not run, unless they were playing soccer, but after 30, you're not even allowed to play soccer, which grieves my heart. Um, and so, and the reason why this is so shameful is as you lift up your robe, you're exposing your leg, which um, by exposing your leg, again, is a shameful thing that the Father is doing. Isaiah, in, his, in Isaiah 47, it talks about Israel's sin as exposing her leg. It's her shame. So the father is now seeing his shameful son. He takes shame upon himself and runs to him before the village can get to him. And as his son begins his speech, did you know this? He interrupts the speech. The son does not finish the speech that he prepared because as the son's talking, he's just like, shut up. Uh, I need a robe. I need a ring. I need sandals. And by doing this, the ring was the signet ring. This was the signature of the family. By doing that, saying, you're in the family again. The robe was his authority as a father is now belonging to his son. Slaves and servants were not allowed to wear sandals, but sons wore sandals. Put sandals on his feet. And as he begins to shower him with these, these symbols of belonging and acceptance and kissing him, you can imagine almost the village starting to peer out what is happening. And the father makes a statement. He says, let's kill the fat and calf. We're partying tonight. You see, Jewish people didn't eat meat unless it was fish and very rarely a goat or a lamb because they're so expensive. And so a very wealthy family might have one fattened calf for their entire life. And so by the father saying, let's kill the fattened calf, he was saying in an explicit way, this is the happiest day of my life. My son has come home. And he marches through the village and that calf can feed 200 people. And the village comes to the house and there begins to be this town-wide celebration of the shameful son welcoming back in. But let's just make no mistake about this. This party is about the father. The father's throwing it. It's the father's calf. Come celebrate with me. My son has come home. And I love this picture. It's the same picture. It says that when one sinner repents, right, one person comes into repentance, there's a party in heaven. Guess what? You're not even there. But God's partying. It's the happiest day of his life. This is the image that we're shown. The father is just the best champagne, the best wine, the fattened calf. Stop, no expense. Tonight we are celebrating my son's return. And at this point, the Pharisees' heads have exploded. (laughs) What? What do you mean? What do you mean there's a party? What do you mean there's a ring and a robe and sandals and a fattened calf? How? How is this justice? It's not. It's grace. And then we have this older brother come into the story. 
And the older brother comes to the edge of the property and he sees this massive party that's happening and calls one of the servants over. He says, what's happening? He says, your brother has come home safe and sound. Your father's killed the fattened calf. And the older son becomes outraged. It makes a very bold statement that we just overlook so often. He refuses to go in. You know what he just did in that moment? Shamed his father. He shamed his father. I will not participate with you on the happiest day of your life, on a party you're throwing. I'm not coming. And and, and to be honest, let's just be real. We probably would have done the exact same thing the older son would have done. And the reason for that is because as the son, the younger son got one-third of the inheritance, everything that's left is whose? The older son's. And so guess what happens when a robe and a ring and sandals are given? Guess what happens when the only fattened calf is slaughtered? Guess whose inheritance is getting messed with now? The older brothers. How dare you take our inheritance? I've worked so hard for I haven't done anything wrong, and now you're just spilling it out over someone who's already robbed our family and heaped shame on us, and now you party and you celebrate? And he refuses to go in, and, and this is where the father begins to go out. We can't stop without making note of this. The shepherd went out and left the 99 for a sheep. The woman left the comfort of her home, overturning everything to find a coin. The father did not go and search out the youngest son. Guess who he went to go search out? The oldest son. Guess who's lost in the story? The Pharisee. By Jesus telling the story and the way he's telling it, he's making it very clear to his audience who's actually lost, and it's not the tax collector. And that would have just been infuriating. <laughs> Wait a minute. And, and so at this point, the tax collectors are like, oh man, this guy's about to get jacked. <laughs> now he, yeah, that's right. Go get him. Go get him, father in the story. Because, again, they would have expected, what, how is honor restored? Through aggression. So they would have expected the father to come to his oldest son, had servants tie him up, throw him in a room, and after the party's done, beat him. And the father comes out, and they said, listen to this, he does not punish him, he pleads with him. And at this point, the tax collectors' minds have just been blown. No one gets beaten. (laughs) The shameful squanderer gets a party. The, The shameful, arrogant, prideful oldest son has a conversation. And the father pleads with him with the most beautiful words and he looks at his son and he says, everything I have is yours. And it's a true statement. Everything literally was going to be left to him. This is all yours. You've been with me always. The only reason that you have not enjoyed the fruit of it is because you were locked into the lie that you have to earn it. It was always yours. 
Isn't it funny that the younger brother's plan was to earn his way back through restitution? And isn't it funny that the older brother's plan was that he would earn his favor through religion? Both of the brothers were convinced that the only way to gate the property that they had coming to them was through earning. And all the father wanted was their presence. How many of us get caught into the trap of wanting the property of God or the blessings of God without God himself? I get caught in this all the time. Just a, just a quick story. I remember when I became a youth pastor, I remember after I married Jen, I think I've shared this story before, but it was such a profound moment for me. And I take over this youth group of 60 students, and I'm 20 years old, and I've got it all together, like most 20-year-olds. And I'm convinced I'm like the next coolest, best youth pastor in the world. I'm gonna grow this thing, couple hundred kids, look out world. And after six months, I went from 60 students to 15. And I remember after like the lowest night in the, not just in my tenure there, but in the history of that youth ministry in the past decade, it was the lowest attended night ever. And I remember getting my car and driving away and shaking my fist at God. And my conversation was something like this. God, I fast every single week. I pray every day. I read my Bible every single day. I've been in a pure dating relationship. I'm a youth pastor. I'm in Bible college. I don't do this. I do this. And I'm laying out my list before God. And I remember him speak to me in that moment as I'm ranting and lamenting of why I should have a bigger youth group. And he just says, I don't owe you anything. Ouch, it really hurt. I was like, okay, yeah. I, and in this moment, I, I, I kind of was this turning point for me. I was like, you're right. You don't owe me anything. And it really wasn't until a couple years later that I actually got the full picture of what God was speaking to me in that moment. I think I was just too frustrated or young to really figure out. Because this is a, a conversation God has with me all the time. And you know what he says to me? I don't owe you anything, but I've given you everything. And I've come to the place over years, and it doesn't mean I don't struggle with this, that I've just had to believe that, God, your presence is enough. The cross is enough. My life could be hell. You should be enough. Because if I'm not careful... I begin to start looking at my life as a way to twist the arm of God. My morality, my religiosity, my self-righteousness, my discipline, as a way to think that God owes me more than what he's already given me at Calvary. But it's amazing, we serve a God who just gives us far above even just the cross, but he gives us mercy every single day. He gives us the people around us, the creation, the air that's in our lungs, the gift of life. He's consistently giving us good blessings, the Holy Spirit. And constantly we find ourselves as the older brother and we think that we have somehow with our lives made a case that God owes us something. And the message of this story for the Pharisee and for the tax collector is you cannot earn what has been given to them freely. We cannot earn grace, but it must be received. 
Tim Keller in the book Prodigal God says, you can avoid Jesus as Savior by keeping all the moral laws. If you do that, then you have rights. God owes you answered prayers and a good life and a ticket to heaven when you die. You don't need a Savior who pardons you by free grace, for you are your own Savior. And what I love is that this story doesn't pick on one side. It it takes these two, I mean, they could not be more opposite in their sin, but they were both in it. One was selfishness and self-indulgence and pleasure, and one of them was religiosity and pride and piety. And Jesus comes right in the middle and says, I'm a father who shocks both of you with my grace and my mercy. 